0: I'm going to read it in Spanish and in English, uh, Spanish first, but we're going to be Mark 1, uh, Mark 1, So in Spanish first, Marcos 1, 15. Se ha cumplido el tiempo, decía, el reino de Dios está cerca. Arrepiéntense y crean las buenas noticias. So now in English, Mark 1, The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is where the Lord. Thanks, be to God. <laughs> Thanks, Ronnie. You guys just crushed that. Okay, we're figuring this out. We're becoming like a like big people church. We're 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 doing it. We're getting established. Well done, guys. Well done. Hey, if you're new here, my name's Dan. I too am one of the lead pastors around here, and uh, we're just having a fantastic time. This. I don't know about uh, you, if you've you've been in the church for a while, this church has healed me. Uh, My wife and I planted this church, and this church has really served to heal my vision of the church. And so this is a place of restoration for you. I really do pray that. So much pain from the church world, all of us have experienced it. Uh, So many questions from the church world that have not been answered, all of us have experienced that. And this place has supplied some answers and given some healing. And so if you're here exploring church again or curious about church, I trust that this will be a place for you to to find Jesus and to find community again. Let's pray, and we're going to get right to it this morning. A lot of work to get through. It's an incredible year for us. Holy Father, we now bow our hearts before you, and as the church has done for millennia since the ascension of Jesus and the gathering of the saints in the upper room and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God's people have gathered around the teaching of texts, the apostles' writings, the gospels, the historical biographies of Jesus of Nazareth, to learn, to take in information, but more importantly, for the sake of transformation. There's not a single soul in this room that you have not brought here this day to bless, to care for. You're a good shepherd. Tend to the wounds in this room, tend to the hearts. Lord, even this weekend, as three babies were born here in our community, (laughs) be with these families, some back in the hospital now with some health struggles. We just ask that you would bless, bless, bless. For all these young single people, Lord Jesus, give them the gift of intimacy with you. May they know that their singleness is such a blessing, that they can serve you in the missionary enterprise of the kingdom with fullness of faith and joy, find friendship. And the extended family here, may they be joined to it deeply. For the married couples in this room, God, we just ask for the richest blessings upon their relationships, friendship and intimacy. And for the saints, Lord, who are closer to seeing you face to face, may these twilight years, these last years, be the most fruitful, the most joyful, as we follow them as they follow Jesus. Would you join me, church, just in taking a breath into our bodies collectively as one body in him, at rest and ready to receive from him, one with him and one with each other, through the regenerating, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. We worship you now in this act of listening to teaching. May we receive from you in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, amen. Uh, 1971. uh, The Nobel laureate and social scientist Herbert Simon released his paper, Designing Organizations for an information-rich world. And in that particular paper, he introduced to the world this concept of what he called an economy of attention. I heard this term this last week. I've been on a deep-dive research rabbit trail on this guy. Fascinating, fascinating work. Simon recognized that attention is a limited and valuable resource in this information-saturated world in which we find ourselves. And this was in the 70s. Imagine now in 2024. With this overabundance of information and constant distraction, we as individuals have a very limited capacity to be able to pay attention to whatever stimuli comes our way day in and day out. Attention is a scarce commodity, and as such, it now has extreme economic value. Ours is an attention economy. The flow of money, and I would argue as well the flow of power, the flow of persuasion, is driven by competition for attention. Therefore, marketers and business moguls, media outlets, savvy companies, and political and social movements and platforms, agenda-driven institutions and organizations, they all employ very, very powerful tools to capture and keep our attention. Sophisticated algorithms are watching what we watch and intentionally hijacking the dopamine and the reward systems of our most primal brains and then those algorithms determine how and what to draw our attention to all for the sake of stirring the desire to purchase that thing that we didn't even know that we needed until we thought we needed it. All for the sake of persuading us in our unconscious brains in our most primal spaces all to persuade us of their particular perspective and opinion. These algorithms are designed to counsel us on a particular course of action that aligns with the agenda of those using the particular algorithm. Now, it is beyond clear, please no eye rolls, it is beyond clear at this point that social media platforms are intentionally and specifically designed to keep our attention at the level of actual neurochemical addiction. I'm almost certain, friends, mark my words on this. Someday we're going to look back at the social media enterprise like we look back on cigarettes and nicotine. And we're going to be saying, what in the world were we doing to ourselves? Can you imagine handing your six-year-old a pack of Marlboros? I think this may be the way that we look at it in the future as the research begins to pile up. It is into this chaotic sea of information and misinformation and misinformation algorithms and attention and distraction that Jesus Christ through the centuries calls for a radical, radical reorientation of our attention collectively saying, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus's proclamation of the kingdom of God was an invitation for all of humanity to redirect our focus and to find truth and love and life in him alone. So, this morning, for the imprisoned in addiction, be that to social media or any other thing that our physiology just can't do without, for those in need of liberty, Jesus would come and declare he was sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, For the lost this morning, I don't know about you, but if you feel like you're in need of guidance, in need of direction, maybe a little bit confused about where to go in your life, Jesus Christ said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This morning, if you arrive here sick in spirit and soul, unhealthy in heart and mind, war-torn, worn out, exhausted by all of this, and just in need of some rest, Jesus' declaration was, orient your attention on me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. When we come to Jesus Christ's teachings, they admonish us, friends, to stop chasing the three steps to this and five simple steps to that. Jesus' teachings actually challenge all of our biohacks, our workflow optimizations, our fad diets, our adoption of the latest influencer's lifestyle, all in the name of finding peace and contentment and flourishing. Jesus challenges all of that. Jesus issues a comprehensive invitation to release all control of our lives to him and to let him teach us what ultimate reality, what goodness actually is, what truth is, what actual beauty is. And so Jesus's declaration of the kingdom of God is like a lighthouse drawing our focus through the darkness of all the panicked pacing that we're dealing with. All the splintering social factions, our over busy calendars, our running minds, one distraction after another. Jesus comes and he declares the kingdom as a lighthouse in the dark. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, embedded in Jesus Christ's declaration of the kingdom was his resolute confidence that what you and I need this morning more than anything is to stop looking for what we think we need in all the wrong places. His is a radical call to start believing. To truly believe heart, mind, body, and soul, to trust with everything that we have, that all we could ever need or want is actually available to us right now. Jesus doesn't overpromise and under-deliver. He promises and delivers. The time has come. Flourishing for you, dear friend, it's not out there in the distance. It's not three steps to finally getting there. It's not once you arrive. It's not getting it right. Flourishing for you, dear friend, is in your heart and mind this morning. It's in your midst. The kingdom of God has come near, Jesus said. Dallas Willard, in his magisterial work, I can't recommend it enough, Renovation of the Heart, says this in the opening of his pages. When we open ourselves to the writing of the New Testament... When we absorb our minds and hearts in one of the Gospels, for example, or in the letters, such as Ephesians or First Peter, the overwhelming impression that comes upon us is that we are looking into another world and another life. It is a design, It is a divine world and a divine life. It is a life in the kingdom of the heavens. Yet it is a world and a life that ordinary people have entered and are entering even now. It is a world that seems open to us and beckons us to enter. We feel its call. In the economy of God, there are only two things required to respond to the call of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This morning, flourishing is fully yours. The kingdom has come near and your way into happiness and contentment and security and protection and provision and joy. All the things that we are wrangling out of this world is simply to repent and believe the good news. Jesus didn't come for prescriptions of behavior change. Jesus came with the declaration of something that has been done for us. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I've said this for our local community of believers this year. I am convinced for myself and for us in this room, this this beautiful local expression of Jesus Christ's body, I'm convinced that 2024 for us is going to be a year of what I'm just calling revolutionary joy. Revolutionary joy. Why do I believe this? Because we are basing our entire year's meditative theme through Colossians, through the Minor Prophets this summer, through the Sermon on the Mount, through this thematic series here at the front end of the year. We are basing our entire year's meditation on these two old-school Bible words, repent and believe. Sounds ominous to some, sounds hope-giving to others. Repent and believe. The Greek word metanoia is translated repent in our English versions, and it literally means change direction. It literally means turn around. And the word pistao is translated believe in our English versions. That could be, I'm doing a very loose paraphrase of this for all you Greek students in the room. It could be paraphrased to focus the whole of our being onto something. To believe is to pay attention. Pay attention with faith and worship and devotion. Repent, look away. Believe, look towards all year long. Look away from the distractions and more information, or look away, worse yet, from the misinformation that we're surrounded by, and believe. Look towards. Focus with surrendered faith. Look towards Jesus Christ's kingdom with devotion and obedience. Look away. Look toward. All year long, everything we're doing this year is based on this thematic meditation. Now, we're talking about the world here in January. We're talking about looking away from the world and its systems, looking towards the kingdom of God. So last week, we broadly defined the world as this multi-layered, interwoven system of physical things, earth, suns, moons, stars, possible multiple universes out there, if you can get your head around that. We to find the world is this complex intertwining of not only physical things, but also spiritual entities, what the Bible calls powers and principalities, demons and angels. And the world is comprised of this of all the complex, like philosophical, economical, political, ideological, religious, and moral systems that organize society. Because every human system is built by us, image bearers, this means that every movement, every political platform, be that conservative, liberal, democratic, republican, every economic philosophy, all the moral standards that the world proposes we live by, every religious organization, try to get your head around this, because these are all designed by human image bearers, they all start with human flourishing as their end goal. There is no movement or platform that wakes up one morning and says, you know, I really want to ruin everybody's life. No, we all want flourishing. Therefore, our systems are designed from the get-go to provide what we think will bring flourishing. The problem is we are corrupted by sin. Therefore, our systems are corrupted by sin. So slowly over time, these systems deform, and they become these mindless engines of, of failure, of oppression, of sadness, of breaking. God... The Father, through Jesus Christ, is redeeming you as an individual. I am saved in Christ. But he is also redeeming the polluted systems of the world on this trajectory towards a new heavens and a new earth. The inbreaking and the expansion of Jesus's kingdom, the kingdom of God, is how he is redeeming the polluted systems of the world. When we pray, as we did through the Our Father series, daily at 12 o'clock, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for the restored purposes of God to heal the deformed systems of the world. Now, a little bit on the kingdom briefly. The kingdom of God broke in with the birth of Jesus Christ. We celebrated that at Advent, looking back to his birth. God became one of us and absorbed into himself all of the wrongs that this world has done, all that we have done through his death on the cross. When Jesus Christ resurrected historically, physically, literally from the grave, the systems of the world that sat, as we learned last week, under Satan's authority, these systems that deceive and lead and kill and rob and destroy— these systems were all conquered. But they were not conquered by the king coming and crushing them. They were conquered by Jesus Christ opening a way for mercy and for forgiveness and for restoration through an entirely new way of living that he then implements through us, his body, by the spirit. While Jesus' life, death, and burial inaugurated, that is, launched the kingdom of God, the will of God, I don't know if you've noticed society lately, the will of God does not live completely, fully out in the world, correct? Jesus calls us his followers back to this participation with God. As his followers, through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, as we obey his teachings in increasing measure, incrementally learning where we've been in the world system and learning to turn from that towards his system, we partner with God once again, and we now go forth as Adam and Eve were supposed to do, originally partnering with God to do what? Cultivate creation, cultivate agriculture, industry, art, engineering, economies, philosophies, politics, all of this we now as the church go forth as the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in partnership with God, cultivating this creation. Remember Jesus' final prayer before his, his crucifixion and ascension. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. That's you, dear Christian, sent by the God of the universe into the world to partner with him in cultivating all the goodness that he intends for us to experience. Now, as we discussed last week, Jesus's people, as Jesus's people, we inhabit these worlds, the physical, the moral, the human, all of these worlds. We inhabit these worlds as intermediaries. We are the medics on the field of battle. (laughs) But we're not just medics for team Republican or team Democrat, for team liberal, team conservative, team gay, team straight. We are medics for all. All. We are reaching out to heal and bring the kingdom of God into whatever circle of influence we find ourselves operating in. The more intentionally we look away from the world's values and the world's standards and the world's ideas and the world's systems through this lifelong process of a daily repent, look away, and a daily believe, look toward the kingdom of God. Through this daily process of looking away, looking towards the kingdom of God, slowly breaks in through us into the world's systems and people begin to learn through us as we learn what is truly good, what is truly true, what is truly beautiful. And the church, the church begins to act as a purifying agent in the midst of all the polluted systems of the world. This is a very complex conversation throughout the history of the church. Theologically speaking, the church has lived in the world in different ways, tried to escape the world. The monks in the 5th and 6th century just fled for the deserts. Others have gone to war with the world. That's been a very recent phenomenon, a political war with the world, where the evangelical community is now very, very deeply associated with a particular party. Um, We have warred with the world in different ways. What we see here is that there is this purifying that's to happen, not by escaping and not by warring, but by living as Jesus lived. More on that in just a moment. For every system of the world, track with me here, class. For every system of the world, there is a parallel kingdom of God version. So you got this, the spider verse, the multiverse, <laughs> you got all these different versions, and all of them are messed up, but there's only one real one. The kingdom of God is the real version of every system that you can imagine political, moral, economic, philosophical, ideological, religious. Maturing communities of Jesus' people, that's us. Please, Lord, let us mature. Maturing communities, those on the trajectory towards being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did, as a community of faith, maturing communities of Jesus, we, by default, begin to develop systems that are alien to the deformed and corrupted systems of the world, but over time increasingly reflect the kingdom of God's values and authority. Because the kingdom is the way that things are supposed to be, the kingdom of God is the way that things are supposed to be, it is the redeeming and the perfecting form of all the fallen systems of the world. So track with this now. That means this morning that the kingdom of God is both simultaneously conservative in the most perfect way that you can imagine and liberal in the most perfect way that you can imagine. Just just stay with me. I realize I'm going to use terms that have a lot of triggering effect in our bodies. Deep breath in. Stay with me. We're going to redefine terms. I don't want to lose you here in this moment. This is so crucial for us. It's going to be a wild year. Presidential elections and all sorts of fun stuff going on. Please stay with me, church. Please. The kingdom of God pledges allegiance to Jesus Christ first. The kingdom of God pledges allegiance to Jesus first and foremost. And then our pledge of allegiance to Jesus and the kingdom of God informs our democratic, our republican, our libertarian, or our independent political persuasions. But did you notice? Allegiance is pledged to Jesus. Allegiance is pledged to the kingdom. And that informs the way that we think about our political process. Apprentices of Jesus, we think about economies, we think about goods and wealth and material flow of money very differently than the world. The kingdom of God is capitalistic, which I realize for some is a very raging and raging word, and uh, and for others uh, it's socialistic as well, which is probably a raging word for some of us in the room as well. The kingdom of God is morally liberating while being rigidly fundamental. Every term that I listed above, as I already said, just trying to calm the room just a little bit as we get through this year. Every term that I listed above has a lot of baggage with it. Liberal, conservative. Democrat, Republican. Fundamentalist, rigid, conservative. All these words, we say these words out loud and they are associated with um, pundits and with sound bites and with emotions. Because these are potent things that we're talking about in the human experience. Each of these words as Christians, we have to do the hard work of redefining all of those terms and living them out as communities of the kingdom of God. There's a radical redefinition that happens of each of these words in the way that we embrace these words and live these words out. Everybody tracking with me? Just a nod ahead. Okay. Three broad examples to illustrate this and to take us to communion moral systems. The kingdom of God is moral, economic systems, the kingdom of God is economic, and the kingdom of God is political. Please take a deep breath. <laughs> Track with me. We've got to get in this together. It is moral, it is economic, it's political. Obviously, I tried to choose the least controversial themes to illustrate this point. Um, the reason that I chose these uh, and if you're new to Neighbors, you know, we're pretty we're, we're unapologetic in that we're not light fair around here. Uh, we do ask a lot of sermon listeners and students of the Bible here. And we ask you to listen carefully. We, we ask you to listen to, from perspectives uh, that are well thought out. And so that requires some work. I chose these particular themes not just because they're controversial, but they're controversial because they touch on the rawest place of the human experience and the human existence, which is exactly what Jesus came to address. He came to address the rawest places of human experience and existence. So the world, the world has its moral standards, the world has its economic standards and systems, and the world has its political systems. But I want us to think for the rest of this year in this third way. There is a third way, a parallel kingdom, the true spider verse, the kingdom of God verse. And that is what we are breaking into the world. So the kingdom of God is moral. Let's start there. Let's start there. And again, uh, the easiest and the hottest button to push when it comes to the moral structures of Jesus Christ is sexuality. Okay. It goes without saying that this requires the utmost of gentleness and sensitivity in this moment. It is clear that sexuality touches the most potent places of the human experience, and that is why we as the community of faith, no matter where we find ourselves this morning, must be so gentle and so careful and so humble and so able to listen to those that we love and learn from and teach. Here's what I want you to hear as we get into this little subset of this sermon. No matter where you find yourself in the seat this morning, in this conversation around sexuality, whether you're gay or whether you're straight, whether you're single, whether you're celibate, whether you're sexually active, whether you're married, listen, Jesus Christ's kingdom ethics, his sexual ethics, his moral, his moral system, Jesus unapologetically claimed to be the way of flourishing and sexual satisfaction. And that is an invitation for all of us to consider. But I want to assure you of this, just a pastoral moment for your souls. We have to give ourselves, and you need to, my dear friend, give yourself a lot of time. Keep coming back, keep learning, and be gentle with yourself because the church can be so cruel when it comes to sexual sin. It's ridiculous. Nothing like Jesus. Be kind to yourself. Be gentle with yourself. As we navigate Jesus' thoughts and teachings, because they are jarring, they are so alien to the way that we understand moral standard, moral significance, and moral systems terribly sensitive area and i can tell you from experience i didn't step into a church for the very first time till i was 21 years old and i was a wild child of the 90s in everything that you can imagine with that statement and when i first came into the church and i began to realize what these people were saying about jesus and the bible and sex i was initially terrified (laughs) literally i was literally like if they find out about my life i am in huge trouble Deeply confused for a long, long time after I became a Christian. Like, why, Jesus? Why? I don't understand. Why? 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 I just asked about a thousand times over, why? 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 Here I am 25 years later, to be honest with you, still asking, why? (laughs) But that why question is really important because it produces meditation. And meditation eventually begins to produce obedience. And meditation and obedience does open up to understanding. And now I can tell you after 22 plus years of marriage to my wife... And living according to Jesus' sexual ethic, having been delivered from the standards of the world that I was living in, there is no greater joy and there is no greater flourishing than to submit my sexuality to Jesus Christ, to submit my sexual behavior to Jesus Christ. Because this is where flourishing and joy comes from. But you will need time in a community around you to discern that and to learn that and to be able to ask why. Everybody got that? Okay, let's talk about, sexual ethics within the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a third way when it comes to sexuality, actually celebrates, ridiculously celebrates sexual desire and sexual pleasure without blushing. The Song of Solomon, try as we may as interpreters of the Song of Solomon, the Song of Solomon is eight chapters of very steamy PG-13 Hebrew poems depicting the joys of physical intimacy between people. Now, when we read those poems, we're like, that does not make any sense to me. But if you were a Hebrew reader, you'd be like, oh, The Bible celebrates the fiery passions of human sexuality unapologetically and without blushing. But, third way, it does so within the confines of what the Bible calls a lifelong covenant union between two sexually different people, a man and a woman, as it says in Genesis. Now, we don't have time. Maybe we will do a series on this in the next couple years. There are vast biological... And emotional and theological foundations as to why God has designed sexuality and constrained it to the confines of covenant union between a man and woman. There's a ton of reasons for that, natural and spiritual, but God's moral standards for human sexuality primarily are established because human sexuality reflects the joy-filled intimate communion with God the Trinity and God and his people. Throughout the Bible, God is depicted as a husband with his wife, his people. And so human sexuality and our covenant union of intimacy with him is inseparably related and linked. When this is rebelled against, we literally are doing damage to our souls and to our bodies and to the fabric of reality. So the system of sexual morality, according to the kingdom of God, it is this third way. It celebrates, it in the, in the best sense possible, it liberates humans to enjoy sexual pleasure and sexual attraction in the most fiery, passionate, beautiful ways possible. And at the same time, it is terribly conservative and rigid in that it confines it to, within the framework of marriage, covenant union between a man and a woman. Now, if we talk about this in the sense of the world, you have these extremes. On one extreme end, you have the hyper-religious, pseudo-pious systems of fundamentalists and legalists who repress sexuality. They make sexuality a thing of filth and shame in the name of purity. And I personally, as a pastor over these many years, have just dealt with the damage of purity culture in pastoring and counseling, particularly young women. Terribly confusing, terribly wounding within those particular systems. On the opposite and extreme side, The rebellious systems of the world that are based on individual autonomy and authenticity as the only moral structure basically take the fires of sexuality and unleash it without walls. Unleash it without walls. Therefore, the kingdom of God, when it comes to moral structures and sexuality, is this third way. We celebrate sex. We teach on sex. We confine it to marriage as God defined marriage in Genesis 1 through 2 because we believe this is where truth and goodness and beauty and flourishing exist. And here's the thing. I finally have come to grips, and I can take a deep breath right now that I don't need to persuade you, beloved, of that. You have to take that up with Jesus. It's such a relief to me. I used to just, in these moments, just feel crushed by the weight of, how do I persuade? How I need to give like a four-hour lecture on philosophy right now just to get to this stage. No, I don't. You've got to go read four hours of philosophy lectures so that you understand why Jesus said this stuff. And if you don't, okay, that's okay. He'll give you time to figure it out and he'll gently guide you as a shepherd. The kingdom, welcomes, the kingdom welcomes the wounded and the shame of the hyper-religious right, of which there are many, and the kingdom also welcomes the wounded and hurt of the sexually liberated. Because we are all laboring to surrender to love and intimacy, but we have decided that Jesus' invitation to love and intimacy is designed by him, is the route that we're going to go. Does this create all sorts of tensions and questions? Yup. <laughs> Jesus lived in constant tension with both the hyper-religious elite of his day and the progressive Roman escapades of his day. He lived right down the middle of all of that. And in every space that he went, he was upsetting and creating tension. He was a bit scandalous. He was definitely jarring in the way that he went about things to a degree that I'm not even comfortable with anymore. But he was always in this posture of invitation. Hey, the kingdom of God has come near. I want you to consider looking away, looking towards what true flourishing is according to my definitions. Look toward his kingdom, his ethics, his flourishing. Everybody good with that? Deep breath with me, please. Are we still together? Are we okay? Okay, nobody's nobody's running me out of the house. So here we go. The kingdom of God is economic. Let's talk about money. (laughs) Socialism, broadly speaking, in the most broad sense possible, socialism says the rich should care for the poor and wealth should be evenly distributed. Dearest friends, that impulse is parallel to the kingdom of God. That is a legit kingdom of God impulse where generosity and care for the other at cost to self is absolutely paramount in the economy of Jesus. Capitalism, broadly defined, capitalism says right of ownership and free markets create the greatest economic good for all. That too, dearest ones, can be found on the pages of the Bible from various stories. Both socialism and capitalism have marks of the kingdom of God built into them. But these systems, as they corrupt and deform, they get further and further away from the flourishing and cultivating purposes of image bearers. They become more and more dangerous, driven by greed or driven by coerciveness on each side. They become more destructive. And eventually, the systems take over, and they demand more than the people can give or are willing to give. Therefore, they begin to use force to implement their ways. Listen. One million foot history lesson here, but if you follow the trajectories of unchecked socialism practiced apart from Jesus, as it continues to deform, you end up with Stalin. But dearest friends, good red blooded American capitalist in the room, if you follow the deforming of capitalism and its greed that leads eventually to hyper nationalism and fascism, you end up with the Third Reich. That's terrifying. That is why the kingdom of God reflects the highest good of the way that we think about money, of all these theories. But the kingdom of God is always course correcting and checking the deformities under the authority of Jesus. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2, this is the early church, he says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Don't miss the tension here. Luke tells us that the early believers owned their material goods, but they voluntarily distributed those material goods for the well-being of all. So the early church didn't need to conscript the wealth of the rich. The early church invited the rich to consider their wealth that would be moth-eaten and rust-destroyed and to give it for the sake of the kingdom of God. And the, the wealthy said, I volunteer." but did not give up possession of their wealth. They volunteered their wealth. There was this both end, socialism and capitalism. Didn't allow greed to compromise and drive, although you see just in a few chapters later, as with everything in the church and as with us, it gets messed up. This is why we're always returning back to the table of what? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Until Jesus returns <laughs> every single day. And so the kingdom of God... It has moral systems, a third way. It has an economic system that is a third way. And the kingdom of God is political. This is the last one. Thank God, this is the last one. The kingdom of God is political. From Greek antiquity, the classic definition of politics, this is broadly defined, the classic definition of politics. It is the process whereby we form and implement public policies to determine how resources, benefits, and responsibilities are used and distributed for the good of society. I'll just give that to us one more time. The classic sense of politics, try not to think Republican, try not to think uh, Democrat, try not to think all the stuff that we're thinking about when I say politics. The classic definition of politics is simply the process of forming, implementing policies, and determining collectively how resources, benefits, work, labor, wages, wealth, and responsibilities are used and distributed for the good of the collective whole. Everybody track with that? We're all good with that? The word polis is the Greek word from which we get our word city. Polis means city. And we get our words political, politics from this word polis. So politics is the way that we order cities and societies through goods shared, through laws established, et cetera, et cetera. With that definition, that classic definition, that makes the kingdom of God extremely political. The kingdom of God is an ordering of a society under the laws and the will and the authority of God for the sake of distributing its wealth and its work for the flourishing of that collective society. Still tracking with all this? Awesome. This fall, we're going to spend an entire season exploring Jesus's political manifesto as laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. Right in the middle of the height of the presidential debates, we're going to be meditating on Jesus who said meekness is strength. Right as all the sound bites are getting super loud and the awkward dinner conversations are getting a little bit more violent, guys all remember that, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to be reading about turning the other cheek and that nonviolence is the way to victory Right as everybody's screaming about their virtue and their political position, we're going to be listening to Jesus who says our inner heart character is as important as our external behaviors. If you call someone raka, fool, you're in danger of hell. We're going to be listening to Jesus who said his wisdom is rock solid. And it's found in his words, not the sandcastles of politicians and pundits in this world. So as we approach this political season as kingdom of God people, we first and foremost say, okay, here we go, presidential election season. I'm going to pledge my allegiance to Jesus Christ, and then I'm going to honor the emperor as best I can. As St. Paul would instruct us in 1 Timothy, pray for your political opponent. Pray for your political person that is over you in authority. Ours is a politic of prayer. We order this society by humble prayer, intercession for our politicians, silence when misunderstood and accused, humility instead of bravado and chest thumping, selfless service one unto another instead of lording over each other with our wills. This means means that while your political and my political opinions and persuasions are important, In no way, shape, or form am I dismissing or diminishing the power of politics in this moment. They are important, and your opinions are important, and your persuasions are important. But we first and foremost, and again, this is an invitation, as a Christian, by faith and trust, we learn to look away from our political opinions as ultimate, and we look towards the kingdom of God as ultimate. And it's a radical act of faith. Because why? We're immersed in algorithms that are training us that our political position is the only one that should be and ever could be held by any sane person. And until the Bible breaks into that, all we have is the echo chamber deforming the way that we think about things. Until we meditate, in fact, I'm encouraging, I'm just going to throw it out there right now. Spend this whole year just reading the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And see what it does to your soul when you get into into those conversations that we all know are coming or that you're already having. A helpful test this morning, my dearest friend, an invitation and I've been doing this for myself, to discern where my focus and where my attention may be as we get into this year, is I keep asking myself, how scared am I about this political season? Because <laughs> that tells me I'm investing a lot of weight in it. How, uh, how, ang- uh, how angry am I? When I get into a conversation with whoever it may be, how angry do I actually get? Because that right there is an emotional dashboard on the light of my, on the dashboard light on my soul that's saying, beep, 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 are you trusting in What? <laughs> I'm not diminishing it. You still need the engine of politics to drive society forward. I'm not diminishing it. I'm saying that this community, this alien resident community, is a purifying agent in this political year. How? When we recognize that, yes, worldly politics are going to shape our lives, absolutely, they're important, but we recognize more so that we have this responsibility to allow the kingdom to shape us, then we become that purifying agent. Taking a kingdom of God political position means that we operate in these conversations as the language around here is a non-anxious presence, a non-anxious presence. This means that as we get into conversations, our default is not to begin to persuade of our opinion, but to begin to silently pray. I know this may sound silly to some of us, but I actually believe this stuff. I actually believe that in the political conversations this year, it's more important that we pray before we say anything. That we pray earnestly. That we've prayed for the person that we're against and the person that we're for and that we're praying for the person in front of us and then we're very careful about the words that we choose to use if we use any words at all. Because debate, even debate in those moments must be done with respect and care for the other. And then after we've done all that, we can choose to vote and we can have our conversations as to how we voted. For some of us, we may choose not to vote. I recognize in this room that may raise a lot of questions and I would love to help answer some of those questions as to why a Christian may choose not to vote at all. But what we are saying is this kingdom of God morality and economic theory and politic, this politic of prayer and gentleness and humility informs our decisions and our practices. In a 10-minute section of a sermon, we could never nuance all the complexities and the trillion questions that are being raised by this. I fully recognize that. Morality, economics, politics, these are the most powerful things in the human experience. But that's why for us at Ground Zero, we, can't, we can no longer allow those terms like liberal and conservative, democrat and republican, you know, uh, fundamentalist or libertarian progressive. They can't trigger us anymore, friends. We have to be the maturing community of Jesus who has a redefinition of those terms that then approach those conversations with a very gentle and a very careful, non-anxious presence. And again, not to coerce. Dearest ones, it's not your job to convince anybody. You don't have to. Feel that in your body. This week, you don't have to convince anybody of your opinion. It's Jesus' problem to convince them. It's your problem to be convinced by Jesus. <laughs> Everybody tracking with that? Another collective Deep breath. It's going to be a good year, but we're going to be breathing a lot. (laughs) How? Let's close with this. How? Because this has been a running question in my world for a very, very long time. And I think I've come to some peace in this question. How? When I look at the world, the dumpster fire of this particular moment in Western society, when I look at it, when I look at the, the dumpster fire that we find ourselves in, how in the world can we affect it? There's 120, 130 people in a little auditorium in the center of San Diego. And then there's that out there. What? How are we going to do anything? Especially when we've got Jesus like, hey, be silent, breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Pray, be a non-anxious presence. You don't need to share your opinion on everything. Well, how are we going to make any change? How are we going to do... Any good. And this is where the words of Jesus become even more hope-giving. Can I have five more minutes of your time, then we'll get to communion. Okay, there's one other principle I want you guys to get this year. It's called the principle of subsidiarity. Principle of subsidiarity. It's an economic term. It basically, it basically means the smallest group has the most potency in its ability to transform. So, Two parents are much more effective at parenting a child than a bureaucracy over them that's disconnected from the child. The closer relational proximity you have to somebody, the more potency in the smallness of that unit you have to affect change. There's another term out there for you super nerds called Dunbar. Dunbar's number. Dunbar studied primates, and he discovered that the most potent change number that we have is about 15 of us. In a room of 15, there's real change that can actually happen. Interestingly enough, Jesus chose 12 to change the entire universe, okay? Up to about 150 people, after 150 people, Malcolm Gladwell picked up on this in Tipping Point, up to 150 people, we're just done, we're relationally tapped, we have no actual effect. Here's our problem. Because of the information deluge that we deal with, we believe the myth that we can influence the macro out there, way beyond 150. We're convinced by the stories that were told because of the algorithms that we're responsible to change the macro. And that is not the way that Jesus thought about things. Jesus loved small things. Jesus loved doing small things in small ways that then the kingdom of God multiplied. Jesus loved the unseen tiny little rooms in the center of San Diego to just pour himself on for the sake of cities and societies to establish his political kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He said things like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field though it's the smallest of all the seeds. Yet when it grows, it grows into the largest of garden plants, and it becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Here's what I want you to hear this week. You don't need to go out and persuade anybody of your position. You need to be persuaded by your position, by Jesus, if you're his apprentice. If you are being mastered by him, then it's your responsibility to be fully mastered by him and let him help you discover where you're not mastered by him. That's your responsibility. And then this week you go out not to persuade, not to convince, not to coerce, but to invite everybody through in this gentle, humble way through prayer. This means mustard seed. Just think like a mustard seed. This week I'm a mustard seed. That means the glint in my eye and the smile on my face could be used by Jesus Christ. The moment of literal silent prayer for the clerk. These things are what Jesus values for changing the fabric of society. Every conversation that happens this week where you as a Christian, instead of getting drawn into the system of the world and trying to fight with the opposite side of the system of the world, which I've done myself over and over and over, and I just stamped Jesus' name on it, huge mistake. This year, I'm committing myself to I'm only meditating in the Gospels this year. That's what I'm, I'm literally just reading the Gospels over and over and over and over. Because in every scenario, I want to be like, how would Jesus say this? <laughs> what would he say? Because he's so, he's like so confrontational, but then everybody walks away like, oh, that was so nice. But then later they're like, that was not so nice. Let's kill him. <laughs> and they crucified him. Draw, every conversation where you draw yourself into the presence of God in silent prayer and you value kingdom ideals this third way, every gentle moment for the church this year, consider this, it may be that silence is more powerful than getting involved in the conversation. Can you imagine, there it is, the family dinner, and it's going into meltdown because dad just said that thing that you can't believe dad said again. And you just say, in the quiet of your heart, Father, bless him. I I bless him. I pray in Jesus' name for our culture. I pray for Donald Trump and the perversion and the wickedness and I ask for salvation. Father, I pray for Joe Biden in his agedness. May he have a life, Lord, in his latter years where he might truly be able to enjoy his grandkids. Relieve him of his pressure. None of that said out loud. You just prayed all of that right in the middle of the political conversation. You might be surprised what happens in your own body at the very least as the conversation unfolds. It's mustard seed. Jesus said it's these mustard seeds, and we see it throughout history. It's the mustard seed communities of the marginalized church living in this third way. The church, the Roman Empire was so confused by the church. They were so generous with, uh, with women and babies, but then they were so rigid with their sexuality. <laughs> they just could not get their heads around how the church was operating. They were like, you own property, but then you give your property to those that don't have property, and nobody's conscripting you to give that away. And The, the, the Roman Empire was just like, what? What is happening here? And they prayed for Nero as Nero burned them at the stakes. Now, I don't want this to get too weighty, but I do want it to be sobering. Uh, Aaron brought up a great point in the, in, the, in the notes this week. Third way, ooh yeah, let's be wise, right down the middle. Friends, they were still martyred and persecuted. Jesus was still resisted. And so we take on the third way as an act of dying for the other, just as Jesus died for us. So when we find ourselves saying, Dan, I, I don't know what to say, and we have the promise of the Holy Spirit who, who is there and who will say to us, here, I'll give you what needs to be said in this moment, if anything at all. Not being caught up in the macro this week. Each of us have been given our life experiences, our training. And listen, be at ease. You've been given the particular perspective that you have right now at the progressive level that you're at with your training and you're, you're learning about Jesus. You have exactly what Jesus intends to send into principle of subsidiarity, your little circle of influence to be that mustard seed that then creates a circle of influence that is moral and political and social and ideological from your perspective. And you're just purifying it. You're just purifying it. No pressure. You just are doing what you're doing. So when we find ourselves saying this week, Dan, what do I do? And and the church, I mean, I can feel it. The church collectively is beginning to ramp up for this political season on the right and on the left. It's just... Everywhere, here we go, we're going to get going. Why don't we as a community of people just be loved? Just be loved. That is a practical, real thing. Wake up in the morning and recognize, okay, I'm loved. I'm going to let quietness and trust be my foundation. I'm going to pray earnestly for those in authority and those around me through my sphere of influence. And then for this day, today, you know what I'm committing to? I'm going to resist sin and practice repentance and focusing on the kingdom of God. God will give us what is needed in those tiny little spheres. Will it change the outcome of the political election cycle this year? Maybe, but I doubt it. Is it going to change the moral structures and the trajectory of where our society is right now as it understands morality, beauty, truth? Maybe, but I doubt it. But it will change your soul, which then has opportunity to change the one that you love next to you. And that's all we're going to do. That's all we're going to do. All year. You guys can come on up and we're going to take communion. It is going to be a great year. And it's going to be a year like this, dearest ones. A lot of breathing through sermons, a lot of going right for the raw experience of humanity. I want to make myself available. Like where you have questions, I'm not going to tell you, I definitely will not overpromise and underdeliver. I'm not going to sit up here and be like, I've got the answers. <laughs> That's ludicrous. But I would love to be able to process wherever you are and share my process of how I've landed where I'm at because we're all in this trajectory moving forward to becoming like Jesus. And this all ends. You guys remember where this all ends? The kingdom of God on earth is heaven. You know what that is? That is us actually ruling like Jesus rules. That is us actually. Right now, we're being trained to cultivate and rule the cosmos just like Jesus. We will somehow, in the mystery of the new heavens and the new earth, resurrect and rule, and reign, and tend to creation as he always intended, like Jesus would. That's what this is all about. We're learning how to do that, and I am, of all people in this room, so honored to be on the journey with you, and learn from you, and listen to you, and I would only ask that you give me the benefit of the doubt, and learn, and listen as well. We're in it together, and listen, I'm not kidding. If we don't have each other, what do we have as the church? If we're not committed to each other, what do we have? If the church is going to split right down the middle this year over this kind of stuff, we are in serious trouble. But if we say, "Okay, we're out ahead of the we're out ahead of the ball here, we're ready for the kingdom to come," this could be a very transformational year for each of us. Father, as we sing to you, we bless you, we honor you, we we sing your praises. Uh, I want you. Lord, in Jesus' name, to relieve the burdens of your people. They, they've, they've felt so much pressure to get it right. These beautiful souls, they feel so much pressure to get it right, to be good Christians, to share right, to have the right political perspective, to, to have the right view on sexuality, to know how to answer the questions. So much pressure. We're just limited little dirt balls. And God, I just pray that you as the good shepherd would lead these souls to the the deep silence of solitude and the deep places of green pastures and still waters. And that out of that place of being infinitely loved and at rest, daughters and sons of the most high, that then we would be able to go tomorrow to work. It's terrifying going into our classrooms and into our workplaces tomorrow as Christians. Just silently praying as a mustard seed in that place. Letting you provide what needs to be said or not said in the moment with gentleness and humility. And more than ever, Lord, may we become a community of hospitable invitation. Hey, come and see. Come with me. Come have lunch with me. Come, come be near me as I am near Jesus. Anoint this body, Lord, this year. I pray that she would have revolutionary joy. I pray that this church would have revolutionary joy. Joy that is like a river. Joy that overflows in rooms and in political conversations and sexual conversations and economic conversations. Just joy. Because our King rules and we're on our way to ruling with Him. May we grab as many as possible. Send laborers into the field this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.